This is our 34th Sunday in this book. Um, I think it's been a rich study uh, because the book of Exodus is a rich book. Uh, The book of Exodus, in a nutshell, tells the whole story of God's redemption. Israel, God's people, are enslaved under a king who wishes to be God, Pharaoh. They cry out for deliverance. And Yahweh, that personal name for God that we were introduced to in chapter 3, a a name that shows his covenant faithfulness and his self-existent power, Yahweh raises up a deliverer named Moses. Moses is saved as an infant from the hands of the evil Pharaoh, and God sovereignly brings him through 80 years of life before he calls him to return to Egypt. The, uh, through Moses, God sends signs of judgment on Egypt and brings his people out of slavery into freedom. He promises he'll be with them and he'll bring them to Canaan, to the promised land. If you think about it, that's the story of redemption, isn't it? Slavery, a deliverer, a promised land. Today, we have passed the midpoint of this book. We see Israel still in the wilderness where they will remain until the end of Exodus. Uh, They have seen God as their deliverer, and now they see him making a covenant with them as their ruler king. He rules over them by his word for their salvation. As we began this book a couple year and a half or so ago, we we kind of broke down roughly Exodus into chapters 1 through 19, God is deliverer, and now Exodus uh, 20 through 40, God as ruler. He has delivered them, and now he's delivered them for his rule over them. So remember how he introduced his rule, his law, in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 verse 1. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's delivered them to serve him. They've traded bondage under an evil king for servitude to the king of kings, to the God who has made them, who loves them, who's designed them to flourish under his rule. And over the past few months, we've seen God give a speech, haven't we? A speech accompanied with sights and wonders that make Israel beg it to stop. A speech from Mount Sinai delivering the Ten Commandments. Uh, The first four of those commandments primarily dealt with Israel's relationship with God. Their sort of vertical relationship with them and the divine. And the final six showed how their relationship, their vertical relationship with God, now must impact and influence and guide their relationship, their horizontal relationships with one another, with their neighbors. And these Ten Commandments were spoken to all of Israel, assembled below the mountain. And last week, we saw how they responded to that speech. They freaked out, full of fear. They said, Moses, you go talk to Yahweh We don't want to hear him anymore, lest we die. And so as we come to our text this morning, which is kind of the next two and a half chapters afterwards, uh, we see the the kind of the public speech turn private. 
Uh, eventually, Moses will, in obedience to Yahweh, broadcast these couple chapters to Israel in chapter 24, and they'll commit to obeying those statutes. But for now, all we see is God and his mediator. So after going through the Ten Commandments one by one today, uh, we're going to pick up the pace considerably. And we're going to look at kind of an overview of the next few chapters, which are called the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant spans from Exodus 20, verse 22, all the way through to Exodus 24, verse 2. We're going to cover most of that Book of the Covenant today, just kind of a 30,000-foot view. Because really what this Book of the Covenant does is it gives specific commands to God's people about how they should live to serve him. They kind of take the Ten Commandments and show their outworking in the specific way that Israel lives, how their lives should be affected by what God has said. It's not an exhaustive list, believe it or not. But in it, we see again what we saw in the Ten Commandments. We see the character of God. We see the identity of his redeemed people And we see our need for salvation. Uh, This book of the covenant is law. It's statutes. It's instruction. But it's part of God's merciful covenant with his people. So, So one scholar puts it like this. He says the law is found in Exodus 20 through 24. That's the kind of the part we're in the middle of right now. Is not the key to the establishment of a relationship with God but rather to its continuance and well-being. See, God has already supplied the key to Israel's relationship with him, hasn't he? He's saved them from slavery. God has been the first worker in salvation. And now Israel finds himself as his possession, belonging to him. The book of the covenant then comes, and this covenant instructs them how to live as his redeemed people how to be distinct from the world about them. This is essential. In fact, this covenant is merciful. It's it's providing a way for Israel to be near to Yahweh. They're standing far back. The Lord will, in the years to come, draw them near, even in his holiness. So four points for us to consider briefly this morning as a kind of an overview of this kind of swath of text. First, holiness. Second, justice. Third, compassion. And fourth, Christ. Holiness, justice, compassion, Christ. So first, holiness. What is holiness? It's good to get a refresher every once in a while on a word we use all the time in church and hardly at all in our day-to-day jobs and tasks. Holiness is kind of in its most general abstract form who God is in all his perfect attributes. So A.W. Pink calls it kind of the, the excellency of his being, something like that. I, I think often probably what you've heard in, in, in holiness uh, definitions, is that holiness means separation from sin. That's a great definition, and it does mean that in part. Holiness means that God is separate from sin and sinners. But is that enough? If that's what holiness is, was God holy before there was sin? When there was nothing to be separate from? 
Sinclair Ferguson says that in his view, the definition that holiness is a separation from sin starts from the wrong place. He says it describes the creator's attribute of holiness from the viewpoint of the creature. So it's valid, but it's not, it's not complete. So instead of separation from sin, Ferguson suggests defining God's holiness as his being utterly, completely devoted to himself. In this way, he has always been holy. Even before sin ever existed. He is high and lifted up, much greater than his creation, and as such, he is holy. And that means within the Trinity, he has always, forever, completely, from eternity past, and will be to eternity future, devoted completely to his own glory. That's why he created us, to bring him glory. And doesn't that definition help us then to show us what it means for us to be holy? Think about it. Israel now are seeing that they are called to be holy as God is holy, and that means that they are too to be devoted to him, consecrated to him, set apart, if you will, to him. And we see this kind of holiness spread all throughout the book of the covenant. Many of these instructions are in order to distinguish Israel from the nations around them, the nations not belonging to Yahweh. So chapter 23, verse 14, we see Israel is to take part in feasts that no other nation is is feasting in. And this is to set them apart, to show that they honor God and they belong to him. And one of the key verses in this entire book of the covenant is in chapter 22, verse 31. Chapter 22, verse 31. Yahweh says to his people, you shall be consecrated to me. Your lives will belong to me. You shall be holy, for you are given over to me as your king. I have given you freedom. I have saved you. I've given you new life so that you might now be devoted to me. So, Christian, you are no longer under this law. We have labored to communicate that, and we will finish up this sermon, Lord willing, by communicating that. This law has been fulfilled in Christ, but certainly, surely, you can see the pattern here that is true of your life. Redeemed from slavery to sin. Given freedom by a deliverer or mediator sent by God. Entering into covenant with God. Being holy as he is holy. Christian, you are consecrated to God. Your life is not your own. This is your identity. You are set apart for God, not because you're so special, not because your resume impressed him, but because he's so merciful. We must be reminded by the holiness we see in this law that we are to be holy, set apart, consecrated to God. This is our identity. Next, justice. We see throughout, chock full in this book of the covenant, a concern that God has with justice. And he begins, do you see there in in the, the first part of chapter 21, with rules about slave owning. So that should bring a lot of questions to your mind. 
Uh, does the Bible commend slavery? No. <laughs> slavery in that time was not the same as slavery we consider today, especially the slavery that we reject as part of the history of the United States. Uh, slavery was also kind of part of the culture, and so Yahweh is giving rules about how slaves, which is kind of part of the culture, should be handled and treated humanely and with mercy. If you have more questions about that, please feel free. I've read on that and thought about that this past week, and there's a lot of good resources about this. But to be clear, the Bible does not condone or commend slavery. But for now, just think about how interesting this is, that God begins his book of the covenant talking about how to treat slaves. Because who has Israel been for the last 400 years? Slaves. He's teaching them, now that you have been delivered from slavery, treat those under you with justice and fairness and mercy as I have loved you. Israel is to be just. They're to live as those who have been delivered by a merciful God. So there in chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, we see God's commands concerning slaves. Following that, we see God's justice revealed in reading about punishments for, for murder, for kidnapping, human trafficking even, for, for cursing of parents. We read about what should happen when injuries occur during arguments and when animals go rogue, as apparently they were wont to do. In chapter 22, we see stealing and personal property come into view. God is giving these specific, practical, outworking commands to his people about how his law should apply to their lives right then, right there. How to live in his will. He doesn't leave them in the dark. He doesn't say, you could now interpret my law and see how good you do. No, he is serious about holiness and justice and how his people are to follow him. And dear church, he hasn't changed. So God today is just as serious about how we worship him as he was in Exodus chapter 21. He hasn't kind of chilled out over time. He remains holy and just. So it's kind of a common thing to say in modern evangelical churches, something like, come as you are, or God loves you just the way you are. And that's true. It's very true in a sense. It's true in the sense that we cannot get good enough for God. We need to come with all our dirty laundry, with all our baggage, and we need to confess our sins and recognize our need before we can ever approach him for mercy. We need to humble ourselves to trust in what Christ has done for our forgiveness. But at the same time, I think phrases like that can be somewhat misleading. Because God does indeed have standards for how we are to approach him. For how he is to be worshipped. We must seriously take how we too are to approach him. So in Christ. Obviously, we are to come boldly, knowing that he accepts us through Jesus, but we must never come flippantly or disrespectfully. Israel has found, like we saw last week, that they cannot come as they are. They need a mediator. Christian, keep that in mind as you think on God. You can come as you are because of Christ. 
And this should cause us to remember both God's incredible holiness and his incredible gift of Christ as the go-between between God and us. I mean, seriously, apart from Jesus, where would we be? We would be standing far back with Israel, begging for God not to speak to us anymore. Probably the, the pinnacle of God's justice in this book of the covenant is that phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You probably heard that, right? Look at chapter 21, verse 23. Yahweh says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The point that God is making here, as one author puts it, is that the punishment should fit the crime. God is just. He will not be trifled with. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. Chapter 23, verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor. Verse 7. I will not acquit the wicked. God's justice revealed in the book of the covenant is for real folks. His justice is perfect, and it will not let anyone go unpunished. Holiness, justice, third, compassion. Look at chapter 22, verse 26. God says, if you ever, or if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So do, the, do those attributes, holiness, justice, compassion, do those square with you? Or does one seem to be more important than another? Do, do those things seem like they could all coexist equally in God? I think in our finite minds, it's hard to grasp that God is always, forever, 100% holy, 100% just, and 100% compassionate. It's not like when he has an uptick in holiness and wrath, his compassion meter kind of hits the bottom. I love how the author John Snyder puts it. He says, God's love is never at odds with his wrath. His justice and his mercy walk together. Every attribute of God influences all other attributes. He continues, if God is all-powerful, then his wrath is all-powerful. We are faced with a dazzling reality while studying God's attributes. They converge and form a multifaceted divine diamond. And no matter how we turn these truths in front of our mind's eye, there's always more splendor to behold. Church, God's character is kind of put on in a big display case in the book of the covenant. And it's dazzling. You might be reading it and you're thinking like, or got, uh, ox goring ox. Weird. Look below the surface and look at the, look at the motivation for Yahweh giving these rules to his people. It's a motivation of holiness, justice, and compassion. Israel has experienced compassion, haven't they? Well, now they must show it to others. 
So chapter 21, verse 19, we see what might have been a, a forefather of workers' compensation. A, a perpetrator of an injury must see to it that the victim is paid for his loss of time. And then we go on and we see how the abuse of a slave must go be severely punished. How the, the abuse of an unborn child in his mother's womb must be severely punished. God, over all these verses, is so concerned with the oppressed and the weak. And wouldn't you expect Israel to also be concerned with that? Having been oppressed and weak for so many centuries. Israel's been there. And now Yahweh is commanding them to exercise that kind of same sort of compassion to those around them. Look at, at chapter 22, verse 21. He says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. It's kind of saying, remember who you were, so you remember who you are. He goes on to say, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, widow for widow. You see how God's attributes are kind of all meshing together here. In that passage, it sounded harsh, but you see God's compassion towards the vulnerable, as he exercises justice against those who would oppress the vulnerable. See, his justice highlights his compassion, and his compassion highlights his holiness, and his holiness highlights his justice, and so on and so on. Our God is overwhelmingly above us in so many ways, and it's on display here in the book of the covenant. Christian, we understand this too, don't we? We understand how much compassion we have been shown and how we are to show it to others. Tony Marita says, when you were fatherless, he adopted you. When you were a widow, he became your groom. When you were a stranger to his grace, he welcomed you. Those who know such love should be the very ones showing that love to the broken world. Church, that starts here. But as we follow our God's heart, it means showing mercy and compassion to those who are less fortunate than we. It begins with volunteering at the Tree of Life Community Kitchen. It begins with handing out food to those who are needy. This is the heart of God. He is compassionate. Remember how we've seen in the Ten Commandments all along that God's law is summarized in two things. Remember those things? Loving God and loving one another. And so all these prohibitions, you can read them later, prohibitions to theft, false witness, injustice, oppression, disrespect, adultery, negligence, they're all summarized in the truth that Israel must love their neighbors. That's how Tim Chester puts it. He says, what the law of Moses does, along with the rest of the Bible, and supremely in the Lord Jesus himself, is to show us what it means to love God and other people in different situations. So this law 
this, these Ten Commandments that we looked at over the, follow, the previous months, and this Book of the Covenant that we'll finish up in a couple weeks, is to show Israel that their God is holy and just and compassionate, that his nature will never change. And so they covenanted to him as his people, subject to him as their king, are also to be holy and just and compassionate. But that can't be all that God's doing, is it? If that was all that God's covenant was doing, was showing us how we should be like him, then we should all leave super discouraged and probably not show up to church again next Sunday. No, this law is a chapter in a much bigger story. In the grand kind of story of God's redemption plan, this covenant made with Israel is just as a pastor friend of mine said, a chapter in the kind of the progressive book that ends where? In the fulfiller of the covenant. Paving the way for the true covenant keeper. Holiness, justice, compassion, finally, Christ. This law, folks, this law is so good. This law is so wonderful. As we read it, we find that it is just such a good representation of who God is. But then we got to be honest with ourselves and say, it's not really good news for us. Sure, it's good, but it's not good news. It's good because God's character and his will is revealed for us and still helpful for us today. It shows us what he's like, but it's not good for us because guess what? We're not holy. We're not just. We're not compassionate. We break this law every single day. So we aren't holy. Remember our definition for holy, devoted to God. We aren't devoted to God. Every single day, I need to repent of being devoted to myself. In our sin, we are not just. Oh yeah, we are just when others wrong us. Hoping that all the condemnation they deserve falls on their heads. But when it comes to our sins, we obscure justice, don't we? Covering it up making sure no one sees. In our sin, we are not compassionate. Instead of loving others, we use others. We manipulate others to get what we want. So the law comes and it shows us our sin in light of God's character. And I think it's pretty kind of amusing, perhaps, that as Christians, we're super good at using the law to prop up ourselves, aren't we? We, we are so good in the church at using law, God's law, or laws that we can sort of pharisaically add to his law to show our superiority over the person sitting a couple seats down from us this morning. We show that we're better Christians because we keep more rules. Church, that is not what the law is for. The law is to not prop up our self-image, but to destroy our self-image to show us the darkness of our self-image and then kind of point us through that hazy darkness to the image of another, to the image of our law keeper nailed to a cross for our law breaking. Jesus was perfectly holy, devoted to God. 
Jesus was perfectly just and compassionate. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to this book of the covenant. He was the perfect law keeper, but on the cross, he bore all God's wrath against our law breaking. We say it every week, but we need to remember it every week. The Son of God was given this sort of weighty burden of our sin, and he carried it for us and was destroyed under it, punished for all the sin of all who would trust in him and repent of their sins. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Christ, you might have heard us say this again, but we're going to say it once more. We're not here to remind ourselves what a good job we've done following God this past week. We've come to remind ourselves what Jesus has done in our weakness, in our sinfulness, taking our curse on himself and giving us his perfect righteousness. Friend, he can do that for you. Turn to him. And dear church, brothers and sisters, the, the law as Brad read for us earlier from Galatians, is a guardian for us to show us our sin and point us to Christ. The law that we've been studying ends at Jesus. That's what Paul says in Romans 10. He says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So you want to get to the end of this law? You want to see where it ends up? We're kind of a destination GPS set in this Exodus 20 through 24 ends. It ends in the gospel. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says again, as Brad said, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Praise God, we are no longer under this law. For in Christ Jesus, you, Christian, are sons of God through faith. Lawfulness, law-keeping has been given you. It is who you are now. God sees you and he sees a law-keeper. God sees you and he sees Christ. Jesus has brought such a better covenant, hasn't he? Jesus kept the law for us and now he set us free from its condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Repeat that verse every single morning you wake up because you need to hear it again. We are now sons of God, sons and daughters of the King. God's holiness, justice, and compassion meet at the cross. And there's no battle when they meet, one trying to one-up the other. They meet and they join together in Jesus. Because in Christ, God makes us holy, right? He consecrates us to be devoted to him. How? By carrying out his justice on his son so he can show compassion to his enemies. I was reading this past week in the old Puritan prayer guide, the Valley of Vision. And I think we can all pray uh, along with one of the prayers. Holy Lord, I have sinned times without number. I have been guilty of pride and unbelief, of failure to find your mind in your word of neglect to seek you in my daily life. My transgressions and shortcomings present me with a list of accusations. But I bless you, 
that they will not stand against me. For all have been laid on Christ. Church, remember yet again that our sin deserved the punishment fit the, that fit the crime. Our sin was treason against God, and so it deserved a treason against God kind of, of punishment. Death, hell, eternal judgment from an eternal God. But instead of us, instead of you, Christian, receiving that eye for eye, life for life punishment, Jesus took that for you. So we deserve God's condemnation, stripe for stripe. But with Jesus' stripes, with Jesus' wounds, we are healed. He paid it all. Now to him all we owe. Dear Christian, if you feel guilty this morning, weighed down by sin, that's God's kindness to you for it's driving you to, to Christ. He's not punishing you. Jesus has paid all of that for you. As one author says, he paid the penalty that we deserve, and so no more punishment can be required. Do you believe that? Do you believe that as you feel the Spirit's conviction, as you feel guilt over your sin, that that is not God's punishment on you, that is his loving discipline for you if you are in Christ? No more condemnation is left. The cup has been drunk dry. Come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect son of man, in his living, in his suffering, never traced nor stain of sin. No law breaking. See the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law. In him we stand. When you read over the law in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, do not stand on your own merits. Stand in the merits of Christ. The one who has taken the curse of the law for you. Because he did that, we have this this morning. We can draw boldly forward to eat at the Lord's table because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray, sing, and eat. Lord, we can never exhaust the glorious depths of your gospel. So if we think of our lives as sort of a ship on the sea, I think we always kind of feel like we've reached the end of the depths of the sea. We send down the plumb line and we expect to hit the bottom, but with your grace, the ocean just keeps getting deeper the longer we live. The fact that you took on the curse that we deserved. Lord, astound us again with the news that as law-condemned criminals, we've been set free because our king has become the criminal for us. Forgive us for using your law to prop up ourselves and not to drive us to your cross. So give us hearts that yearn to praise you now as we join our voices in singing. In the name of Christ, amen.